and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. There's a lot of noise in the venture ecosystem today on differentiation. When I think of a venture firm that defines differentiation, I think of first round capital. And this week I chatted with Finn Barnes, GP at First Round, on a whole host of topics. Finn brings a unique operating background to the table. He spent six years helping to scale and one basketball from $15 million to over $225 million in revenue. And he scaled this experience to a number of fantastic companies. In this conversation, we discussed intentionality and why the best founders have it, the importance of moving slow and challenging the cult of speed, success being found in moments of discontinuity versus continuity, and why pattern recognition is a code for intellectual laziness. This conversation was a ton of fun and really got me thinking. Finn, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here and yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so Finn, excited to have you on the show today and really dive into a number of topics. You know, before we jump in to your career in venture, tell us a little bit more about your background with uh, And One. You know, I, I love that you were instrumental in the And One mixtapes. It was, it was one of my highlights of, of growing up. So tell us a little bit more about that time. Yeah, so at, at And One, I was I was really lucky in that the the team at And One was was small enough to need need extra people to come join them uh, in pickup basketball games, and they played those games at Haverford College where I went to school. And so in the spring of my junior year at college, I would play basketball with these guys, and I didn't really know who they were, but they were fun to hang out with. And and then uh, one of them offered me a, a summer internship, which I which I took. Uh, to go basically play basketball at lunch during the summer and to learn a little bit about what what a startup was, uh, which I didn't have any context for, and and also um, you know to be in and around the industry of of sneakers and uh, t-shirts and shorts, which I had a love for as a basketball player sort of my whole life. Um, and then you know once I joined, uh, I I sort of had this great gift of the CEO sitting me down and, and offering me a, a full-time job, but also letting me know that I could choose where I wanted to work within the company and, and I could choose sales or marketing or finance. And his recommendation though, was that I choose to work in the footwear department. And I was sort of puzzled by that because at the time there really wasn't a footwear department. And his point was exactly. Uh, and that for and one to compete in the, in the athletic apparel footwear industry, uh, the structure of the business would have to be very similar to the the dominant player in the market, Nike, and that while 50% of Nike's revenue at the time came from from sneakers and 50% came from from apparel, something like 70% of their profit came from sneakers. And so the footwear industry and the footwear department was the the engine that sort of made the company go. And that if And One was to compete, we would have to look the same. And therefore, getting involved in the footwear department uh, was an opportunity for what he called compounding growth in my career. And what he meant by that was getting involved in a team that had to grow within the footwear department uh, on the creative side. And then that department had to grow within product. Um, and then that the product group had to grow within product and marketing. And then product and marketing had to grow within the company. And then the company had to grow within the industry. That, that I would be able to ride all of those compounding waves. And, uh, and because of the success of the company, that turned out to be true. And so I, I really had an amazing ride, uh, learned a ton, and, um, and can't imagine a better, better job right out of college. And so I'm assuming that, you know, both the tie of the creative passion side of that, as well as just seeing the different elements of the business, probably tied pretty well, you know, much further down the line when you found yourself in venture. Talk, talk a little bit more about you know, how you, how you got into venture, you know, if I recall correctly, um, you started working at first round for free, uh, with no intentions of being a partner. So talk, talk That's kind right. of about, about that journey. Yeah. I mean, uh, offering to work for free was sort of a way to cut through the noise of, of, uh, you know, all the, all the MBAs that, that were sort of trying to get into venture. I graduated uh, in 2009. So this was 2008 before the big crash, people were thinking about what to do. Um, I, I went to business school, truthfully, to sort of lick my wounds from a failed startup and, and take some time to figure out what I want to do next, which I believed was start another company, find some great people and, and start another business. And, you know, the truth is, absent any good ideas of my own, I decided the best thing I could do, the second best thing to starting a company would be to spend a lot of time with people who are starting companies and um, with some great you know, minds around what it takes to build a successful startup. And so first round was 
was an obvious choice being in Philadelphia and my wife had her own business at the time and was, was in Philly doing very, very well. And so we weren't, we weren't going to leave Philadelphia. And so, um, found first round and, and sort of offered to work for free and, and join them. Um, and, and was incredibly lucky actually not, not to have the aspiration to become a partner, uh, both because the firm was just starting, it raised their first institutional fund, um, in 2008. And I joined that, that summer and then joined full time in 2009. Uh, while we were investing, you know, out of that first institutional fund, and um, you know, the the thing that was amazing to me was, I was I was able to spend a lot of time with the entrepreneurs that we'd already invested in, and and try to be helpful. And they were smarter than me and had better ideas and bigger aspirations, uh, but they also had, you know, they'd be ten weeks or ten months into a journey, and I had you know close to ten years of experience sort of building companies, and so I could be helpful. Uh, and at being at first round and, and being able to do that while at the same time, recognizing the, the product that we were building, uh, the brand that we were building and, and really being able to, um, to help with that, uh, you know, was an amazing, amazing opportunity. And so as, as those two things started to come together and I started to see, uh, the, the impact of the first round product on the founders that we partnered with. Um, you know, and then, and then eventually, you know, after a couple of years started actually delivering that product by making some initial investments. Um, you know, I, I got the same goosebumps from delivering that, that product, the first round product to founders and seeing the impact as I did, you know, seeing kids line up at foot action stores to watch the mixtape or, you know, showing up and seeing crowds at Hunter college who were coming in to see a mixtape game and, and also, you know, most deaf performing at halftime or, or looking across the food quarter to Houston Mall and, and you know seeing some kid wearing shoes that I helped to build, uh, hearing users of the fitness game, you know I'd put together talk about how you know this this you know virtual personal trainer changed their life. All these things were sort of those goosebump moments that tell you that you're in the right you're in the right place, you're building the right thing, and you're having the impact that you aspire to have in the world. And and so for me, uh, the company that I was looking for when I went to business school. Uh, turned out to be first round. And I was just really lucky to find it. I really like that framing. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of investors on, on the podcast and very rarely do you hear kind of the, the idea of thinking through, um, thinking through it like a product, right. And thinking through it as a product that's an offering for, for founders. Um, so I really like that framing. Now you've, you know, obviously you've been at first round over the last decade, as you mentioned, seen a, a whole smattering of fantastic founders, one of the concepts that you know, I've seen you talk about um, that I really want to probe into is this idea of human-centered venture capitalism, right? Really building a business around people uh, and not just products. So talk, talk a little bit about that more, and then let's, let's dive into some of the specifics. Sure, sure. So I think for me, moving into venture, I, I've always been a product person. As, you know, as a consumer, I was a consumer of sneakers. I still am. <laughs> Physical products have just always been my thing. And, and not just because of how they look or, or feel when you, when you purchase them and hold them, but the idea that you can understand the thinking behind them, why they were crafted in the way they were and, you know, the colors that were chosen, the materials, the logo placements, the, you know, all of those things. Uh, and so I think with, with venture, when I started recognizing that in many ways, every email that I send, every meeting that I take, uh, every, every board meeting I show up to, uh, and the, that each one of those things is a product and it's a product that the entrepreneur is, is consuming and, and they're buying with their equity. And, and so making sure that I was as proud of each of those products as I was of all the physical products that I had created in the past, uh, was really important to me. And, and so when I think about that and you think about serving that customer, uh, you also think about the, the purpose of the product. Right? And people buy products so that they can, if it's a professional setting, so they can do their job better, if it's athletics, so they can play their sport better. Uh, but basically, products are purchased uh, for enjoyment, uh, which usually in the realms that I've worked in has to do with the, the sort of ability to support success. And so I think that we talk a lot and venture generally about investing in teams, and particularly early people will say, oh, team is all that matters. Uh, but I think what really matters is is how do you support that team to be in the best position to win and how does your product unlock the full potential of that customer and so i think a lot about how i as an individual partner and how we as first round and the, the platform that we've built can best serve the entrepreneur and bring out their best 
And the belief is that by doing that and by defining success in that way, uh, over time, sort of the score will take care of itself and the financial outcomes will come. But what really matters is to build build partnerships that unlock an entrepreneur's full potential, uh, believing that that if you do that, they will read the market right and maximize the the opportunity in front of them in terms of the potential of the company that they're building. Yeah, I think one of the nuances that gets you know kind of lost in that idea generally is is this idea of intention, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it was interesting hearing the way you just framed kind of the response to that question because it was clear that there was a lot of intent in the way you thought through or you you delivered that response, right? I think when you think about press coverage of startups, you know, there's a lot of focus, you know, on funding rounds, you know, sometimes product excellence, many times market size. Um, and some great founders, you know, like Scott Belsky has written a book on it, right? We don't focus on kind of the middle of the journey enough. Mm-hmm. We focus on the beginning and the exit. It's it's rare to see that focus, I think, on intentional structure that that oftentimes great founders, great CEOs prescribe. You know, I'm curious when you think about intentionality, you know, who are the founders or the companies that really come to mind? And, and what are some of the examples of specific things they've done that's really been world-class or unique? No, there's, yeah, there's so many, so many examples of, of people pursuing, pursuing company building in a very specific way that aligns with the market they're going after, the customer they're serving and, and the, the team that they've built. Right. And, and I think across our portfolio, there, there's many, and, and I've had the, the, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with a few of them. I, I would say, you know, sometimes this is about how information is shared and the cultural norms at a company. So I've been at Notion, you know, Notion is, is um, he's been incredibly intentional about crafting a tool, uh, deeply believing the, the form and function of that tool will influence the creative efforts of the people who use it every day. And so when you use Notion, you can feel that craft in the actual digital product. Um, and, and they build a respect for that craft and for detail into the DNA of the company. And they express that belief in in the way that Ivan has crafted the culture of the company and the actual workspace, the office, as a tool for his team uh, to do their best creative work. So Notion is sort of honoring the power of a small team to have tremendous impact uh, in their product, but also themselves as a company. Uh, and, and they've sort of given their team the benefit of, of leverage from tools um, and the freedom to pursue extreme tactical prioritization in the context of sort of deep strategic understanding and alignment by sharing, you know, detailed company strategy with the team um, and making sure that every member is educated, qualified and, and entrusted uh, to, to focus on the one thing that they believe matters most for the success uh, of their role and for the company sort of at any given time. I've seen that same strategy work at, at larger scale as organizations cross into the hundreds or thousands of employees and they share their core sort of unit economics or financial metrics with frontline employees with the belief that with a clear understanding of how the business actually works and context around how their individual actions can move the needle, everyone will make their best decision. And so sort of by pushing, culturally pushing education and understanding and context to the edge and then entrusting people to make their best decision, the roll up of that is that, that the company does better. Um, I think sometimes this intentionality is, is it comes out in the actual architecture of the company itself. So Anjani and, and Ankit at Ubiquity6, uh, you know, they're building a, an AR, VR platform for, for these experiences. And they know that to achieve their full potential, the platform needs to support a rich ecosystem of developers sort of at some scale in the future. Um, but they also know that like any platform company, they need to launch the first few applications and identify the early primitives of consumer use. Um, and so rather than architect the entire team around the internal development efforts, they chose to create a studio within the company that interacts with the platform side of the business as if they were a third-party developer. And they did that because while it may slow down some initial development of consumer-facing applications, they have the belief that the, the learnings about the prosumer, the developer that will sit outside the company eventually and work on the platform, um, is that learning is as valuable as the learnings about the end user sort of for the long-term success of the business. Um, and if we have time, I have two more. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, so so I think the the other the other two, I think sometimes it's, about leading by example. And so Afton at Modern Fertility, uh, she, she really believes in, in honoring hard work. And, and I think there's this sort of sense that you, 
you enlist at Modern Fertility to empower women around their reproductive health. You're, you're sort of in service to the modern fertility community when, when you join. And the performance culture that her and Carly have crafted is, is really, really incredible. Um, and you know, I remember meeting with her as she was working towards launch and, and you know, as part of my work with founders, rather than jumping right into the numbers, you know, so to speak, I, I always try to ask how they're doing, like as humans, like, you know, how are you doing? And she's headed towards a launch. And so, of course, she was a little stressed and she looked tired. And um, when I asked her about how she was doing, she acknowledged that she was working at an unsustainable level. And, you know, I, I would assume that for her, because she's she's incredibly uh, motivated and, and works very, very hard. I assume that's over, you know, over 100 hours a week and sort of some of the unhealthy things that sometimes people do. Um, but I think this was, it was very intentional and she knew exactly when she would pull back to a sustainable level and exactly where the breaking point was for her and, and more importantly for her team. And so different than a lot of people who fall into working hard, but like not doing the hard work and sort of feeling overwhelmed, but not productive and all those, all those traps. Afton was doing incredibly hard work leading her company to launch. And she was absolutely like getting the most out of her team, pushing to the edge as you, as you have to do a lot of times, but, but not going over it. And she was sort of highly cognizant of when, when to pull back and that this wasn't a question of sprinting through the finish line and then collapsing. This was about a time of intense work and then a time of decelerating to s sustainability. Um, and, and, you know, you couldn't afford to, to not work hard, but you also couldn't afford to crash and, and burn out. And so I think she, she had this sort of ability to balance those things and to lead by example, um, and, and absolutely get the most out of her team. And they had a, you know, a very successful launch because of all that collective hard work. Um, and the last one I think is, is sometimes, sometimes it's about values uh, and a strategic perspective on, on what you optimize for and the, the confidence to hold on to that belief in the face of sort of saying no to, you know, in quote, kind of like obvious, but ultimately value eroding opportunity. And so I think the best example of this uh, that I've seen recently is Zach at Steady, um, which is a structured messaging platform for, for B2B trade. Um, so including sort of like EDI in this esoteric format that controls a lot of the flow of physical goods all over the world. Um, you know, and he's been pursuing this vision of a global network of trading partners, effectively the sort of like the communication network for every supply chain in the world is, is what Steady could be. Um, and he's been pursuing it with some very specific beliefs about how the network needs to be built and grown in terms of the, the type of participants and the relationships between them, uh, the support sort of further growth of the network, as well as the quality and capabilities of the underlying technology required uh, to support the network at scale. And, and because of his views on both of these things, he's moved into the market saying no to more opportunities he said yes to. And he's building his team more slowly than you might expect in terms of sort of the capabilities and quality. And he's chosen to optimize for, for that quality at every opportunity, knowing that scale will follow and sort of holding on to that belief that, that when the network tips, he'll be ready, steady will be ready, and sort of like market dominance will follow because of the quality of both the participants in his network as well as the underlying technology. And I think that that consistent ability to, uh, to say, in his case, to sort of say no and to optimize for a singular thing um, is is tremendously intentional and and should pay uh, tremendous dividends. I think I think it's really interesting because in in all the examples you laid out, you know, as you talked about, kind of at a at a surface level, some seemingly disparate ideas, right? Architecture of company, you know, applying it specifically, obviously, to the industry that you're in, mission, values. One of the things I kept consistently hearing was this idea of pace and sustainability. And of a lot of the founders that I've had on the show, and I've had a couple of great first round founders, you know, Harry, Alma, Bryn, uh, Amir, you know, even in, in those conversations, one of the things that very consistently came out was this idea of pace, right? And really balancing, you know, yes, from a growth and sustainability perspective, but also, you know, pace and driving very specifically into the type of organization that you're trying to build. You know, one of the things... For me, uh, you know, as I run an organization, we have about 80 employees. One of the biggest areas I focus on a lot with intention uh, is pace. And, and actually, because of a lot of these conversations that I've had, you know, you recently retweeted, you know, Sharon, Shane Parrish wrote a great article from Farnham Street, you know, on the praise of slowness and challenging the cult of speed. I, I always think it's particularly interesting, especially when folks in venture or tech you know, uh, accommodate to that, that kind of, that line of thinking, especially because of some of the, you know, ulterior uh, pressures, obviously, of growth with venture capital. Talk a little bit more about, you know, why you retweeted it and, and a little bit more about how you think about the topic in general. Sure. So, so first I have to say, I love Farnham Street. So if, Shane, if you're listening, thank you uh, for the, the work <laughs> you do. Um, I, 
I think that the feeling about the value of slow for me comes from two places and I, I can try to describe, I'll try to describe both. Uh, so, so the first is a recognition of the consequence of fast that Shane writes about and, you know, toward the end of that piece where he talks about the idea that fast decisions tend to be poor decisions and they eat time, uh, meaning that they create more issues in the future and, and you require sort of more time and attention to, to solve that uh, later. So they eliminate optionality and they save us a little time today at the cost of a lot of time in the future. And, and so I think our, like our hyperbolic discounting psychology traps us in this cycle. Um, and I think Shane's right that it can, it can sort of eat you alive. Uh, and, and the idea that you're moving faster actually in the near term means that you move slower in the long term. Uh, the second for me is, is sort of this visceral, visceral experience of the difference between uh, goal achievement and time commitment in creative effort. And I think startups are, are certainly a creative effort. Uh, where success lies in moments of discontinuity rather than continuity. And, and I'm, I'm training for a marathon right now, so, so let me use that as an example. Um, if, if I know I want to run a marathon in about three hours and 30 minutes, the very best way to do that is to run each mile at about eight-minute pace, right? So it's, it's actually seven minutes and 52 seconds. But the, the point is sometimes faster, sometimes slower, but about eight minutes. And if, on the other hand, to win or to achieve my goal, I, I need to run a three-hour marathon, I now need to run each mile about 30 seconds faster. And so taking to the limit, the, you know, the faster I run each mile, the closer and closer I get to world-class. So obviously faster is better in this continuous world. Uh, but in, in the startup world, we live with discontinuity all the time. Like we talk about step changes and tipping points. We look for inflection points in every curve and we believe talent gravity is actually a law of physics. Uh, generally, we, like, we are, we're used to power law functions when it comes to returns and you know, the industry sort of pivots on the unicorn horn of outliers, right? And that's, that's like the thing that we all operate around. And so to go back to the marathon example, if I told you I had that, you know, one hour and 59 minutes after the start of a marathon, a wormhole would open up and it would instantly transport you to the finish line. Like if you wanted to win the race, you would sit at the start and contemplate how to access the wormhole rather than trying to run seven, six, or five-minute miles. And so, so in this discon discontinuous world, faster is not always better. And sometimes the best way to fold the universe and seemingly bend space-time and do the impossible, which is what a successful startup really is, the best way to do that is like, you know, set the timer on your Apple Watch for 10 minutes and just stare out the window. Hmm. I think it also speaks, it's interesting the way you framed it out. And I, I really like the example of the marathon because I think, you know, one of the things... Um, I think, you know, founder CEOs, um, you know, kind of see, I've, I've seen this a lot in my, you know, my experience running the business is this idea of kind of compensation for judgment versus compensation for time. And what I mean by that is there's all these highly impactful decisions you can make, highly impactful deals you can close, so on and so forth, that exactly fin the, the way you're laying it out, can have step functions on the trajectory or the growth of your business but they disproportionately take, oftentimes they take less time, right? So it's not a linear trajectory uh, or linear mapping rather of time and impact. And so it's, so maintaining, I think the best companies I've seen kind of consistently have this either appreciation for discontinuity, appreciation for ambiguity, right? And, and important, often disproportionate placement kind of on, on judgment and some of those elements as opposed to time, um, which causes a, a pretty interesting chasm. I, I want to use you know, this kind of framing, and we haven't been talking about it, so I want to transition a little bit, but I want to use this framing kind of to talk about what you what you see when you look across the venture market today, right? So when you look at, you know, tech, venture capital today, how do you, how do you think of this idea of pace? And specifically what I mean by that is larger and larger funds are being raised, right? There's been a healthy discussion on whether venture, uh, VC and founder alignment is at an all-time low, right, with larger funds generating larger fees. Um, you know, there's perspective incentive to push growth versus sustainable value creation, right? I think the best investors obviously have a, have a perspective on sustainable value creation, but I think it's also natural and human, right, to have the instinct or incentive that potentially goes counter when investing. How, how do you think about that phenomenon at large? And then on a, on a micro basis, how do you protect against that instinct? Sure. So the, the misalignment of incentives with with fees, certainly, I think has is in my mind anyway has more to do with with the limited partners and and venture funds rather than the, the entrepreneurs and venture funds. But that may be the separate topic. Uh, the when you think about investing in companies and sort of the access to capital, I think the the capital markets 
desire to push money into startups uh, and the belief that these these markets are all network effect businesses that that are winner take most or winner take all and that losing money for a long time to acquire market share will lead ultimately to um, market dominance um, i think i think and the, the necessity uh, for companies to to bend markets that maybe are more naturally fractured into markets that are sort of aggregated up to one one ultimate winner um, I think that that creates challenges for for founders who are trying to build, uh, maximize the value that that they create, and to make sure that that value is is ultimately sustainable. And and so I do think that there are sometimes uh, misaligned. I don't know if it's so much incentives as it is uh, vision. And I think alignment of vision is one of the critical things that entrepreneurs should look for when they when they talk to a potential venture partner, and understanding how they define success uh, and making sure that that is aligned with the way the entrepreneur just defines success, both, both long-term success for the company, but also I think, and even more importantly, near-term success for the partnership between the venture capital firm and that firm's business model and the founder and the company they're trying to build. And so I think we are, we are focused on the very early stage at first round and the definitions of, you know, pre-seed and seed and all these things I think have changed quite a bit over the last three years. I'm happy to <laughs> give you my perspective on it. Like I think companies actually have, I think there's only four stages and we could talk about that, but uh, the, the, when a founder thinks about um, being aligned with an investor, I, I think you want to think about that investor's business model. And, and so for us, when we think about alignment in, in, in that vector, uh, you know, we think about success for us being the founder building the largest, most durable enterprise possible based on their vision and, and capabilities. I think the challenge with larger and larger funds and, and funds that are participating across broader and broader ranges of the startup ecosystem uh, is that the, the definition of success becomes the optionality of investing more capital in the next round rather than the, the startup navigating its way to maximize the, the value of that company. And so I think the, um, and, and so as you get deeper and deeper into that relationship, potentially you find yourself bending the company that you're building more and more towards, you know, lower probability events of, you know, outcomes that would move the needle for a, for a, you know, very, very multi, very large multi-billion dollar fund um, versus discovering the, the very best outcome for you, which might be. You know, if you look at like Notion, for example, or Clearbit, like these these companies have been incredibly intentional about the way they've thought about uh, approaching the capital markets, but also the way they've thought about approaching their end user. Uh, and I think both of them will build massive enterprises, uh, but they will not necessarily do it on the on the back of cash, you know, infusions. They're going to do it on the back of revenue, and and it doesn't mean that the ultimate outcome will be smaller. It just means the path to get there is is different. And that you know the founder had a very specific vision for how they wanted to do that. I think I think I have Alex from Clearbit coming on the show in a, in a couple of weeks, and I think I think he's intentional not just about kind of the product. It's I think he's intentional about everything. I mean, his manager handbook and some of the pieces that you know Clearbit has put out shows mm -hmm. you know that intention in, in the way they run the company. One of, one of the pieces, um, one of the threads I want to I want to kind of go a little bit deeper on is something you just called out, which is this idea of tech-enabled businesses versus software businesses, right? There's kind of been this conflation in the public markets. We're seeing it play out with WeWork, you know, Peloton after the IPO is treating tech-enabled businesses, you know, as if they're software businesses. Talk, talk about that idea a little bit more. You know, Aaron Levy had a pretty good uh, description of it at, at TechCrunch Disrupt this week. But talk, talk about that idea a little bit more because I think it's something that we're seeing with the subpar performance of some of these IPOs, right? Lyft, Uber, et cetera. I think that this narrative is starting to unwind a little bit in, in layman's terms, right? And for the broader community and this kind of nuanced understanding is starting to come out. So talk, talk a little bit more about that idea. Sure. So I think, I think um, Ben Thompson's probably done the best job walking through this in, in detail as he often does. So I think, I think that's, if, if you really want to dive into this, I think he, he has the most sort of nuanced perspective. I think for me, the, when we think about uh, this, whether it's, you know, call it unwinding or, or sort of the, the narrative falling apart. I think, I think there's also a difference between like, is, is the narrative, w which narrative is unwinding? Like is, is the narrative, if you, if you use WeWork just as an example, 
is it the $47 billion narrative that's unwinding? Is it the core vision of the company narrative that's unwinding? These are all very different things. And, and so I think there's, there's a question of, of which narrative is, is being called uh, on, on the table and, and certainly being called by the public markets in, in that case. And I think that the, the idea that the public markets are, are a, ultimately sort of the, the weighing machine is, is right. Um, and there's, there's lots of differences between the public markets where there is no auction dynamic and you can buy and sell freely and, and private markets and so forth. So I think there's, there's differences in structure of the, of the, cap, of the two different capital markets. Um, but I also think there are, you know, the narrative of ultimately these, these companies that do deal with physical goods and services and do have lower margin um, pushing multiples that reflect traditionally in the public markets anyway, much higher margins and, and sort of much lower marginal cost um, is the core is the core thing. And I think that that in some cases has you know, played out to be true. And if you look at some of these companies that, that have true network effects and, and where once you have some level of dominance in a market, it does tip and you do own it. I think you could potentially then look at how the unit economics change and, and tell yourself that narrative and believe it, particularly sort of earlier in their lives. But I think as, as they've grown and you've seen that there's, there is in fact continued competition and there is in fact um, you know, the, the need to you know, continue to invest in some of the things that drag margins down, um, it doesn't mean that those businesses aren't good and it doesn't mean that they're not um, you know, the original narrative that the founder had or all the work that all those teams did to build the enterprise value that they've created, um, even, even in the public market, you know, to the extent that those are, those are sort of disappointments um, to, to some people. I think the, the value creation is, is still relatively extreme and, and sort of unbelievably impressive in terms of what those teams have done. Um, and so I think, I think the real question for me is, is sort of where, where, did, the, where did the wrong narrative start getting, getting uh, written um, and, and was that sort of the, the founders, the, the, the series C, A, B, C, D, like when, when did that narrative start to get written and, and which pieces of it are sort of unwinding? And I think in each of those companies, my belief is that there's a very strong long-term narrative. The question is like at what scale and at what multiple? Well, and especially as you have, you know, as you were alluding to earlier, right, as you've gotten kind of this breakout from four initial stages of fundraising to, uh, I, I don't even know how many we count now, right? I mean, the other day I was looking at something that was a pre-Series B deal, and I was like, I thought that was a Series A, right? So, I mean, we're mm -hmm. getting to kind of this point where there's there's almost so much nomenclature or so many sub-stages. So, the incentive effect changes kind of at each of those micro-stages, right, in terms of who are the investors that are putting the money in and, and what is what impact does that have on the business from a narrative perspective? And then, you know, from a downstream perspective, what's the effect that it has on employees? Right. So I think right. I think yeah, you know, if you have the if you have the you can have the question at the outset. And I, I completely agree with your set with what you're saying, right? Which is this idea that you know tech enabled businesses can still be very good businesses. They still can create extremely outsized value creation, um, but they just might not have some of the components as software businesses, right? And so they shouldn't be valued as software businesses. The downstream effect that I think can be highly negative where that misnomer, that kind of misallocation takes place is the effect then on employees, right? If there's a down round, if there's something in the capital markets, how does that end up affecting kind of the equity value of all of those teams, all of those hardworking people that are building the businesses? Yeah, it's a fair, no, it's a fair comment. And I think that the, the leadership teams have to you know the the equity that people have is a big piece of their compensation and i think part of the the benefit of of you know these like direct listings for example uh, part of the the benefit of kind of being in, you know more thoughtful about long-term capital planning and i'm sure you'll get this from alex and you would certainly get it from ivan if you talk to him at notion the the idea that you have a sustainable business where you control your own destiny uh, that allows you as a founder to to honor you know the commitment and the blood sweat and tears of your employees and to control as you know to a greater extent you never have full control but to control to a greater extent the the way you um, the way you approach that i think at the same time you know the the ability to uh, continue to to grow and continue to try to dominate a market if if you can if you believe that 
uh, you you have a chance to to establish some some level of of monopoly economics is pretty compelling, and and there's always this trade off between the risk that you're adding to the business uh, through your financing structure and you know aggressive marketing tactics and and all the things that are required for growth uh, to you compare that risk to the risk of the opportunity cost of not doing that, and I, and I think that. In many ways, uh, keeping your head as a founder in the face of all of that is a very, very challenging thing. And and being, you know, sort of somewhat reflective about how how sustainable is the business, what is the real opportunity, and uh, do you do you believe the um, the way that the the capital markets are approaching you, and do you align with the business models and strategies of the sources of those of that capital? Uh, making sure that just like at the seed stage, you're thinking about the product and service that you're buying with your equity. I think at the you know at the growth stage, you should do the same thing. Let's talk a little bit more, Finn, about you know this idea of pattern recognition. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, yep. You you have an interesting perspective on it, uh, which which I tend to agree with, which is pattern recognition is really code for intellectual laziness, right? I want to explore that deeper. You know, does that Let's first start out with, you know, does that concept for you hold true both for investors and operators or, you know, when you made that comment or kind of that line of thinking, was it more specifically geared around investors? I think probably the comment was geared around investors because pattern matching is something that is more, more commonly used in the investing parlance, but I think it applies to both equally. And, and when you think about founders or investors looking backwards uh, at at what has worked historically, and then without well-considered thought and exploration of alternatives, pursue that path of thinking. Uh, they're allowing the past to hopefully shape the future, which, which I think you build the future on top of the past. But, but often, you know, mostly the 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 real value creation is not a repeat of exactly the same thing. It's sort of like the you know history rhymes, but it doesn't repeat. What are some of the examples of, you know, opposite perspectives you've taken on kind of common pattern recognition approaches, you know, fellow uh, VCs take, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm sure a ton of nuanced examples kind of at the business model level or specific company level. I, maybe we can ab- abstract it, you know, one or two levels higher, right? Oftentimes, when you talk to venture investors, there there's some of these guiding principles that folks will use, right? Looking for a weakness in a founder or so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. What what are some of the examples of opposite perspectives you've taken? And then what have really been the underlying reasons, you know, for adopting those approaches or perspectives? Yes, yeah, so I can pick on that one, looking for weakness. Like I think I think when you think about a venture investor's job, it's really two pieces. There's there's interviewing before the investment, and then there's coaching after the investment. And I think that when you should look for weaknesses after when you're coaching, <laughs> uh, but but in the interview, what you actually want to look for is is strength, right? I, I I prefer to look for specific strengths, like incredibly high spikes that define a founder and and their personality and everything they do and think about, uh, and and that that those strengths that are a fantastic fit with the company they're building and the market they're attacking. Um, and so I think I think that that's a great one where you say when you're interviewing to figure out if this is if this is an entrepreneur you want to partner with, what you really want to do is is you don't want to look for weakness and and you don't even want to look for the absence of weakness. You want to look for a singular strength that you believe carries the day and you know, swamps any weakness that that person may have. And then after you build the partnership, you start to understand them as a you know more sort of fully formed human being, and you start to understand the biases they have and the the blind spots and so forth. And then I think what you do is you look for those weaknesses, but not specifically to then coach them around those weaknesses and try to make them on average better. What you want to do is you look at everyone's weakness and we all have many. And then you say, here's the two or three that I think actually most significantly erode your strength. So let's focus on those and let's try to mitigate those so that we're actually amplifying your strength as much as we possibly can, because it is that singular strength that probably is going to carry you from the impossible to the to the reality um, and and help you move from idea in your head or you know you and your co-founder to product market fit and then the first ten million of revenue and the first hundred million which buys you the right to achieve the next billion. 
I think the strength versus weakness one is actually a really good one. I'm, I'm glad you kind of double clicked on that. Um, oftentimes, you know, I, the way I kind of think about that, uh, that framing is looking for weaknesses is kind of looking for the quote unquote all rounder, whereas looking for strengths is really looking for the outlier and someone that's going to break through. Right. I think when you, when you have people that have such dominant strengths, it's, it's kind of the same line around product market fit, which is if you found product market fit, there's a lot of other elements of the business, right? Either in construction or execution, you can potentially be weak at, right? But your strength, the product market fit can often carry you through. And then the idea becomes, especially to scale the business or grow it out, how do you start mitigating some of those um, some of those weaknesses to ensure that that value creation is sustainable, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think I think this for me, it comes funny when we talk about product market fit. The the lesson I learned there early was I was testing shoes for and one and I would be out at playgrounds and at malls and showing kids prototypes of shoes. And for the first six or nine months that I did that, I was taking diligent notes and I was keeping track of how many sort of thumbs up versus thumbs down each shoe got across these groups of 20 kids at a time. And we weren't doing, we couldn't afford to pay for focus. Groups. I was just like going to a playground and laying out shoes at Rucker <laughs> park on the, like on the, on the, on the benches. Uh, but, but the, the thing that I started to see was that there was zero correlation between my stats and sell through in the store. Right. So once the shoe got into the store, there was like zero correlation. And, and so it really was you know, useless exercise. And so then I started paying attention to different things. And, and I actually went back and looked at my notes for the shoes that had done really well. And what I actually saw was that the shoes that did really well were the shoes where one kid would pick the shoe up and look at it. And then he would hold it while he talked about all the other shoes. Huh. And then he would hold it while every other kid talked about all the other shoes. And then it would look like he might actually want to take it home with him. And this is like, a size nine prototype that didn't fit him. And it was a left foot only. And it was like this object of joy. And there was clear, like an emotional resonance. And I think that that is a much stronger indication of potential commercial success than nine out of 10 kids said this was their favorite. Right. And I think that that's the same exact thing that we're talking about here, where you need to look for those spikes that can cut through the noise because we're in a business of outliers. And, you know, the, the average, the, you know, the best on average loses every single time to the black swan event that you're actually trying to create. Let's talk about spikes a little bit more. You, you've talked about when investing, you focus on how much a founding team can learn per dollar spent, right? Um, I think that's a very interesting kind of framing or, or way to think about it, you know, at a, at a building block kind of atomic level. What have been your biggest learnings and spikes kind of when you think over the past decade, obviously, as an instrumental part of building first round? What have been your biggest learnings and spikes, you know, personally as an investor? So I think the the first one is when I realized that the number one resource that all founders have is other friends who are founders. And so if you're helpful to one founder, then you will meet a lot of other founders because the, the first one will tell the others that, you know, you were actually helpful. Uh, so I think that was, that was one early learning that, that was very, very valuable. And then I think over time, understanding how I wanted to define success uh, as, as a venture investor and, and realizing that, you know, becoming an investor is a really weird thing because any other job that you get, there are a lot of people that you can usually go to and get advice and guidance and you can find lots of others who've done the job before and there's a series of best practices and so forth. And I think with venture, uh, the, the general thing is, you know, good luck, go find the next Uber, Airbnb, <laughs> Facebook, Clearbit, whatever, you know, whatever you want, like, you like good luck, go find it and talk to you when you do. Uh, and, and so I think, understanding that uh, one, I needed something more granular than that to work on. And so this, this recognition that the job, the commiserate parts of the job were actually interviewing and coaching, uh, recognizing that each of those things have been deeply studied, broadly written about. Um, there are lots of different philosophies and approaches to, to both. And that I could, I could practice those things and build a real practice of the craft of venture through those two lenses. Um, was incredibly valuable. And then recognizing that that success in venture is something that in many ways you you don't have control over. Uh, where And what I mean by that is, you know, measuring my success against the founder's financial outcome is, is sort of idiotic because the founder doesn't actually have control over their financial outcome. There's the market and luck and all these things. And so 
for me to be, you know, even you know, one to two steps removed from that and to be measuring my specific individual success against a founder, an individual founder's outcome just creates a fracturing in, in that partnership. And so moving from that definition of success to, to one about the quality of that partnership and understanding that for me, success is when the founder is done with the company, right? Like, like every founder that I partner with, it's, it's very unlikely that they will retire with the same email address that they have when I meet them, right? Um, and, and so along the way, whether it's because the company is a dramatic success and, and is a public company and they decide they, after some number of years, they no longer wanna be a public company CEO, or in the alternative, it's a smoking hole in the ground and they get another job because they need to pay the bills. Uh, or more likely, somewhere in between those two, for personal and professional reasons, they decide to step away from the business. Um, for me, success is in that moment, if asked, they would say two things. One, they would say that they gave their absolute best to the company, that they couldn't have learned more through that experience. They couldn't have grown more as a leader, uh, not just of that company, but of companies and people in general. Um, and then two, that you know, Finn was instrumental in unlocking that for them. And, and if, if they would say those two things, then that to me is a successful partnership. And that's the thing that I have control over. And so that's, that's how I define my success. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, going deeper into that is, is sort of starting, and this is, this is something that's new over the past couple of years, is starting to, to really understand uh, and be able to be proactive about the types of founders that tend to deliver this success and the types of founders uh, who who um, are self-reflective, who want to grow and learn. They, they want to be their best and they understand that the only path to building the maximum possible outcome of their company to fully capturing the, the value of the vision that, that they've crafted is to work very, very hard to, to grow as an individual and to, to become the person that they need to be in order to lead the company that they want to build. And I think those, those types of founders um, and, and then the ones who self-identify as, as that type of learner are the ones that I love to partner with. I really like how you, how, you know, throughout the entire conversation, Finn, you've really incorporated these ideas of, you know, learning, partnership, you know, coaching, um, you know, throughout the way you think about your craft. I, you, you can tell, you know, when you answer that question, right, not only is it incredibly genuine, but you're incredibly passionate about it. And I think one of the things, you know, when, when I look at first round also and look at the, you know, the, the whole gamut of, of venture firms out there, I, I don't think it's just talk. I, I mean, I think you guys, you, you live those ideals, right? With programs like dorm room fund, angel track, you know, talk a little bit more just about, you know, what's motivated those programs and, and why the firm feels they're so important. Sure. No, I love, I love to talk about those, those programs. They, for a couple of reasons, one, I think they, they embody the beauty of first round as a company and, and the value that we have in uh, experimentation and trying to evolve as a business that, that operates within the startup ecosystem. And we have, we have t-shirts that we, that we give out uh, that we, you know, they say be a founder on the front. And, and the obvious thing is, yeah, be a founder, like start a company, come to us. We'd love to partner with you. But I think they also speak to something a little bit deeper about the way the firm operates, which is we have lots and lots of incredibly smart people who work unbelievably hard to serve the founders that we partner with. And this is, this is sort of you know, service, service like being in the military, not service like an accountant, right? So these people are in service of the entrepreneurs that, that we work with. And, and the be a founder mantra is something that, that they live as well. When they see a problem, they see an opportunity, they get to come up with a solution and they get to build that solution and put it in market, understand how the customer feels about it and whether we should pour in more resources uh, and, and whether this can be a pillar of what we do, but also of, of the startup ecosystem more broadly. And I think, you know, Dorm Room Fund um, and AngelTrack are, are sort of two examples of that where what started as an experiment and, and insight into ways that we could uh, provide, uh, you know, get provide access to capital uh, and access to knowledge to incredibly capable, talented people who otherwise might not have this level of insight into venture, how it works, uh, and and more broadly into the startup ecosystem and sort of some of the nuance there. Um, and and hopefully we through that knowledge and exposure to that we can help generate success for each of those individuals, you know, in their in their career, whether that's as an investor, whether that's as an entrepreneur, whether that's as an angel, 
Um, and so these programs are designed to bring in incredibly talented people that represent, you know, diversity of background, gender, et cetera. Um, but, but also have a shared vision and understanding of the value of startups and the, um, the reasons that engaging at a very high level and sort of thinking about businesses uh, is additive, regardless of what your, what your sort of day job or, or long-term career aspirations are. And so I think by putting these programs together, we're able to continue to just build this community uh, that, that we have established and you know, sort of first round community and, and all the people that we touch and sort of hoping that over time, the sum total of all this effort is more incredibly talented, smart people building long-term and highly successful careers in the startup ecosystem. Um, and that those people will be increasingly representative, uh, you know, rather than sort of where the startup industry has been historically. Finn, as we, as we round out the conversation, you know, final question for you, what do you think we don't talk about enough in tech today and, and you'd really like to use your platform to change? Yeah, I think it's a hard one. I think, I think that um, while diversity is something that we, we talk about at, at one level, I think in many ways it's still sort of a third rail topic that, that is uh, not, doesn't feel safe to talk about and therefore it doesn't get talked about enough. I think it's, you know, people talk about it as a social imperative when in fact I think it's clearly an economic imperative as well. You know, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that the, you know, the, the people who will sort of disrupt or create new markets or new industries um, will look the same, come from the same places as the people who created the last generation of, of you know, dominant market participants. And so I think there's an economic imperative there that we don't, we don't talk about enough. Um, but I think also just, yeah, just creating safe, safe spaces for people to talk about the things they are doing in specific to try to bring the industry sort of into the 20th century. Um, I think you know, 21st century, whatever. Um, I think that we don't, we don't do enough of that and, and finding ways to encourage people to be specific, to talk about what they're doing, to ask questions about, you know, things that they think might be helpful, things they think might be holding them back. Um, I think would drive that, that conversation forward. I think that's one. And then the other one that I think doesn't get enough airtime in general is I think the the innovation approach to climate change is something that, you know, in my view, climate change is the largest underpriced risk in the global economy today. And when risk is underpriced, investors should be investing. And I think we don't we don't do enough talking about that. And I think similar to, you know, when the when the UN report came out 30 years ago, it basically said the same thing that it said this year, except for 30 years ago, we had 40 years and now we have 10. Um, and I think that from an investment perspective, uh, when it comes to that uh, massive change that, that is occurring, uh, you know, people are not uh, focusing on it enough, talking about it enough. And, and so you see mostly uh, either hard tech investors uh, or, you know, nonprofit slash grant organizations, you know, carrying the water there. And I just think that's, that's also a mistake. Well, Finn, you know, this has been a, a really, really interesting conversation. I'm glad you were able to make the time. You know, thanks. Thanks again for joining us. We really enjoyed having you on today. Yeah, no, me too. Thank you so much for doing it. And, and uh, yeah, if you ever need uh, any, any interest, other people, or, or if you have um, other, other questions in terms of follow-up would always be available and, and happy to do it.